Welcome to Unabridged Conversations, the Black Radical Tradition. This podcast features unedited interviews from most of the participants in the documentary film project, Conversations, the Black Radical Tradition, released in 2021 by BK Scholar Productions. Each interview is introduced by Conversations director, filmmaker, and interviewer, Edwion Easy Stokes. This episode of Unabridged Conversations, the Black Radical Tradition, features former Black Liberation Army member and former political prisoner, Jaleel Mutakim. This interview was filmed between 2017 and 2018 in Wallkill, New York. Yeah, no, it's my pleasure, bro. Uh, I looked over the notes and some letters that sent me, so uh, this interview we're going to go into some more personal aspects of your case. Oh, um, okay. I want to start with, uh, you mentioned that you wanted to issue a statement about uh, Cointel Pro's son on uh, March 9th, 1968. Um, I you got my letter? <laughs> I'm going to let you say it. I'll tell you what it says, but but, but I, I, I know I know what I wanted to say. Specifically, man, I think it's important for us to understand that um, at, the, at the advent of the BPP, when it really got started and started moving forward, um, um, the government, specifically the FBI, uh, had basically said that the BPP was the greatest threat to the internal security of the United States. All right? <clears throat> now, what we find that more often than not, when black people, particularly, begins to uh, organize themselves uh, to uh, um, uh, to prevent them from succumbing to racism or exploitation, etc., um, rather than dealing with the issues that are, that they are confronting, they ref- prefer to uh, repress the movements, the individuals who are engaged in this organizing. We find that happening with uh, everyone from. W.D. Du Bois, who was blacklisted from uh, 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 Robles, who was blacklisted uh, from uh, Martin Luther King, who was ultimately assassinated, Martin, uh, uh, Malcolm X, uh, James Farmer, uh, each of those who were organized in, in, for the improvement of our conditions in the United States are ultimately targeted. So the same thing happened with the, with the uh, with the Black Panther Party, to the point whereby on March 9th, 1968, J. Edgar Hoover put out a statement, an edict, you might say, stating that um, any Negro youth or moderate who succumbs to revolutionary teachings would be dead revolutionaries. All right? That's a powerful statement to state from an individual who represents the United States government. In fact, basing, stating in, that they would execute right, uh, anyone who succumbs to or become revolutionary or be inherent to revolutionary teachings. Right? So this statement by him and his organization led, ultimately led to the death of 33 Panthers all right, in the period of 1967 to 1970. Right? So we note that the United States will, in fact, target individuals for killing, right? And they'll do so despite what the law says. Now, naturally, it would have been more prudent if he were to state that 
those who were engaged in revolutionary activities would be uh, convicted by the letter of the law, sent to prison, you know, etc. But that was not the statement. The statement was that they would be killed. Okay. So <clears throat> it's important for young people today, especially young people today, uh, with this um, resurgence, right, uh, opposing white supremacy, uh, the Confederates, the new neo-Confederates, neo-Nazis, and et cetera, that the government, more often than not, will side with white supremacy, will side with those who are more likely to injure and prevent the growth and development of what is, for the most part, supposed to be uh, protected by the United States Constitution for black people. All right, so it was important to understand that. Uh, it was important for, for that to be said, you know, in no uncertain terms, right? Uh, history has proven uh, that this is uh, how they act, how they treat us uh, collectively as a whole. Yeah, Trump, Trump says a lot of things that is asinine, that asinine and, and, and totally ignorant, you know. Uh, it, it virtually indicates to what degree that uh, this country has backlash, essentially backlash from the Obama administration or the election of Obama as president. So <clears throat> we see that throughout history, there has always been this, this kind of um, uh, response uh, to any degree by which black people in this country uh, move forward or progresses, right, uh, and become what is considered to be part of the, the, the American mosaic, right, uh, something that they uh, obstinately oppose uh, from actually happening. So uh, it was important for that to be stated. And also what's, what's important is, is understanding in terms of COINTELPRO, uh, one of the part of that edict in 1967, uh, August 25th, 1967, right, um, it was written that it was prevent the rise of a Messiah, <laughs> you know, a black Messiah. Now, that in itself it would indicate some degree of psychosis amongst these people who believes that, um, that there's going to be this great Messiah who's going to come forward and uh, liberate these, these downtrodden individuals who have been uh, for ages, last 400 years at most, uh, suffered from the, the vestiges of slavery. You know, uh, it indicates the, the neurosis of a system in and of itself, you know, of people of color. And we have to deal with that and recognize that. Uh, I want to give you an opportunity to make a statement on Herman Bell and those uh, set pages. Um, this is something, unfortunately, we didn't get to talk too much about. I appreciate it. Both of them, both of these guys are fantastic, uh, uh, esteemed members of our community. Uh, Seth Hayes, as, you, as many don't know, but should know, uh, has been in prison since 1974. And uh, at this point in time, he is suffering uh, from uh, diabetes, right? And there's a he suffered from medical neglect, right? He has suffered uh, uh, from many, uh, oftentimes going into a comatose condition, right, out of medical neglect. And there's been an effort trying to get him a, a medical pump, pump and monitor, and has not been able to do so. So there's been a campaign uh, to the DOCS uh, to get him the proper medical treatment that he's supposed to receive. 
um, uh, that they are obligated to give him. But of course, you know, uh, we find that you know, that's not just New York State. It's, it's across the country in terms of medical issues for prisoners. Oftentimes, there's, there's neglect. You know, they don't, we don't get the best medical treatment. And that's because we're considered the other. You know, prisoners in the United States are considered the other. You know, they're not part. Our humanity has been uh, degraded, you know, dehumanized for the most part, you know. So you think this only applies to prisoners who have been in the United States? I think that the, those who are political prisoners are targeted, right, uh, more so than the general population. Um, they are viewed as educated, informed, um, um, and are capable to articulate issues that the general population uh, generally, you know, does not find of significance or, or value. And so therefore, by their uh, capacity to articulate issues uh, and uh, be progressive, right, uh, they're often considered to be uh, someone that they have to keep under watch, you know. Uh, so the same thing applies to, for, for Seth, same thing applies to uh, uh, my co-defendant and uh, comrade uh, Herman Bell, you know, as most recently he was uh, viciously attacked, right, brutalized, you know, and uh, is currently under uh, SHU confinement uh, for something that we know that this guy, this guy has been, uh, for the last 20 years, not a single disciplinary ticket, not one, right, in the last 20 years. I think he had one in the last 30 years, or one or two in the last 30 years, right? And all of a sudden, they alleged that he assaulted a correctional officer, right? Uh, we know that's not to be true. That's not his part of his demeanor. That's not part of his character. That's not who he is, right? And uh, right now, he's in SHU fighting some charges against him. Uh, there is a campaign uh, 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 trying to get the charges dropped and have it released from SHU. Uh, Herman uh, uh, has a two master's degrees. Uh, he has a two bachelor's degrees. Um, he is a well-liked uh, uh, individual uh, in, in the prison system. Um, uh, his history was one that before he became party, a member of the party, he was a, a college um, football star, right? He had a scholarship for Laney College in Oakland, California, uh, before he joined the Black Panther Party. So he's an athlete, or he had been an athlete, right? He is soon returned 70 years old on January 15th. He returned 70, 70 years old. Now here you have a man who's 69 years old getting beaten by six correctional officers. That's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever, you know. So um, it, it is important that people recognize that in, in respect to Herman, Seth, uh, and uh, many others, like uh, Suniata, Mutulu, uh, uh, even Leonard Peltier, Jane Langman, uh, 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 Rashid Johnson down in Florida, uh, uh, that we, because of our understanding of the system and, uh, and, and willingness to uh, be true to ourselves, to be genuine and authentic in regards to that reality, um, more often than not, they are targeted. You know? uh, I have um, 
gone through the situation uh, when I was up in Attica, you know, for teaching a class, uh, teaching a black history class. And um, they felt that by, because I'm teaching a black history class and, and was, um, made, I made an analogy <laughs> with a street organization uh, that they considered to be a gang and essentially making an argument or making a point that street organizations should stop getting involved in criminal activities was the, the message that I was presenting. Uh, they felt that uh, that was a, uh, uh, some kind of a threat. And they put me in SHU behind that, you know. And ultimately led me to be transferred here. And I'm grateful for, for the transfer <laughs> to be out of Attica, that's for sure. Uh, but the reality is that even though you speak truth to power, Right. When you speak truth to power, um, for often than not, you, they consider you uh, um, a threat of some form. Uh, you made, um, again, I'm going back on some of the things you, you wanted to speak more about. Uh, you mentioned that kind of irony that got lost on you, which at uh, 45 years after uh, President Carter, he writes a letter on behalf of Oscar Lopez Rivera for, his, for him to be released. Uh, and then you mentioned that Andrew Young was fired while this was yeah, back in 1977, I organized a, a national campaign uh, to petition the United Nations in behalf of political prisoners, in behalf of prisoners in general, right? Because uh, the United States does not recognize the existence of political prisoners. They don't do so because political prisoners are criminalized, right? No matter what they're their, what they were captured for, right? Uh, more often than not for political activities in the community, uh, they're criminalized in the judicial system. And so therefore, the United States does not recognize the existence of political prisoners. Now, they'll talk about, the United States will talk about uh, human rights violations, political prisoners all around the world, right? And other parts of the world, but not here in the United States. And that's a ridiculous notion. You know, it's just uh, antithetical to the reality that there is dissent in this country. We know that there's dissent in this country, the people protest. And then there are people who go to prisons for the nature of their protest. Is that not political prisoners? All right, so, um, so in 77, I initiate this campaign. And um, as part of the process, having the petition submitted to the United Nations, um, uh, we had an opportunity to have a journalist speak to Andrew Young, who was then the ambassador, uh, uh, US ambassador to the United Nations. And the question that I asked of him through a journalist was, does political prisons exist in the United States? And he answered emphatically, perhaps thousands. That was his answer, perhaps thousands. And you can imagine what happened, right? Uh, the right wing of this country had a fit, right? And opposing this truth of Andrew Young. Right, and by virtue of that, uh, Jimmy Carter, who was then president, had him fired, had him dismissed from his post. All right, so here we go. Fast forward 40 years later, and we have now former President Jimmy Carter writing a letter to Obama, President former Obama, former President Obama, requesting that he grant clemency to Oscar Lopez Rivera. Right former member of the FLNN, right, Puerto Rican political prisoner. So now the question for me is, how did he reach to this level, this epiphany, 
that political prisoners exist in the United States, and then therefore have the notion or the, the wherewithal to support Oscar's release. Now, was there any reconciliations between Andrew Young and or uh, Jimmy Carter, right? And that's a question that's just something that's pondered in my mind, you know, from an individual who was the, the progenitor or the, the one who put forth the, the means from which uh, Andrew Young got fired, right? And here I still languish in prison some 46 years later. All right, so where's, uh, what do I need to do in order to get Andrew Young, both Andrew Young and uh, uh, Jimmy Carter to support my release, you know, my campaign for clemency, you know? So th that's, uh, uh, I think, um, the substance of my concerns in regards to, and I much appreciate uh, Jimmy Carter uh, reaching this level of his own honesty in regards to this issue, in regards to this matter. You know, uh, the history of this country is, has, has not been one uh, gratifying uh, for those who dissent or seek to move this country forward in its own um, uh, belief of itself, you know. Um, the old die hard, you know what I mean? Old ideas, new ideas find a difficulty uh, of fighting against old ideas. The old ideas try to hold on to those, those ideas, right? <clears throat> and so th this is the, the basis of the struggle, right? Uh, to move the country, to move people, move our consciousness to a higher level of understanding of our own humanity, right? Uh, it is part of that struggle. It's part of that process, right? And like I said, old ideas are hard to die. You know, they don't want to let go. You know, and this is the reason why you, you find today uh, these old ideas of, of the, the, the Confederates, right? And uh, they trying to hold on to that, that history, to that past, uh, in as much as it was a hateful past, right? It was a dehumanizing, degrading past. They try to still hold on to it for this heritage. I don't know why. But it seems that they don't want to progress. They do not want to grow. They don't want to become better and in their own humanity. That's a problem. All right. Um, I'm going to sort of turn, turn it back to the clock to 1971. So this may, you can tell me if you want to talk about this stuff or not. But uh, it's important that I ask on May 21st, 1971, what, what do you remember from that day? May 21st, 1971. Okay, all right. Well, <clears throat> um, as some know, many don't, in terms of the history of the Black Panther Party, uh, the Black Panther Party uh, um, uh, head office in New York City uh, two years prior, I think 1969, uh, was raided by the FBI. The whole leadership was decimated and sent to prison. It was a case called the Panther 21 case, right? So the whole leadership of the Black Panther Party uh, was, uh, is for the most part, in New York City was put to prison, put in prison. They had what they called was the Red Squad, uh, which is a, a secret organization of the police department. So they did surveillance, investigating, and provocateur activities to support the FBI, Cointel Pro actions in order to destroy the party, right? So in April of 1971, uh, the members of Panther 21 were exonerated, was acquitted of all the charges that had been lodged against them 
two years prior, right? They were released from prison, right? Uh, as a result of that and other actions that was going on during the period of time, because Cointelpo created a split in the party, right? Uh, between East Coast and West, not so much East Coast and West Coast, between Hubie Newton and Eldridge Cleaver, right? And this split became, for the most part, one of violent, uh, uh, right? There's no other way they can put it. It became violent by virtue of the, uh, the nature from which the, uh, the FBI, Cointelpo, created dissension between the two, two factions. We ended up becoming two factions. Um, the New York chapters uh, became part of the, the Cleaver fraction of the party, right? And um, during the process of when Huey was in prison and Elgin was basically the main focus of providing leadership for the party, the, the movement had became more militant, right, under uh, uh, Elgin's leadership than it had been under Huey's leadership. And so when Huey was released from prison, his efforts was to bring the party more so back towards its original platform, right, of service to the community, of developing programs, and et cetera. Whereas um, uh, um, Eldridge was that we need to engage in more uh, armed struggle, right, to put it bluntly. Uh, in order to counter the type of uh, repression and murdering of the Panthers that we was encountering across the country. Like I said earlier, about 33 Panthers had been murdered, uh, unprovoked. George Jackson was also killed on August 21st of uh, 1971. That's, actually, I was arrested on August 28, 1971 uh, after George's uh, murder. Um, allegedly, they said that I was trying to retaliate against uh, George just getting assassinated in San Quentin prison. That's what they alleged, right? And uh, I was uh, captured at that time. However, on May 21st, well, actually it happened on May 19th. May 19th, 1971, two police officers were uh, shot um, in front of uh, D.A. Hogan's address, or his house, I believe it was. And, uh, and then on May 21st, two police officers was killed in the polo grounds, Harlem polo grounds. Uh, uh, projects. Now, what is significant about this in regards to COINTELPRO uh, is that, <clears throat> particularly in the ones in, in respect to the May 21st, May 21st was a, was a black and white police officer, right? Now, in the housing projects of uh, the Polo Grounds, there is a black and white um, uh, housing authority officers, right? Used to patrol the area. And it was alleged that they were selling drugs, right? They was engaged in, uh, as we have FBI documents that indicate that they were selling drugs during a period of time. And we also have FBI documents that indicate that a um, drug dealer had put out a hit on these Polo Brown Housing Authority officers, right? We have documents that indicate that, okay? One of the officers' name was named Porter, David Porter, I believe it was. Right, um, and so uh, accordingly, um, it is believed that the two officers that were killed, Waverly Jones and Joseph Pagentini, was a mistake for the two housing officers uh, that were actually had a hit on them. Okay, um, 
on May 19th, on top of May 19th, in August, someone put a someone, and no one has to determine who or how, put a submitted a, a communique to the media saying that the Black Liberation Army was responsible for these shootings. All right. Now we also know that the FBI was engaging in poison pen letters uh, and various type of provocative activities, including uh, um, uh, sending miscommunications uh, to the media, uh, misinformation to to the media. All right. Um, so ultimately, what happened was that I was arrested in San Francisco in August, and they alleged that the weapons that killed the officers in the polo grounds in May 21st was in my possessions in San Francisco in August. All right? That's what they alleged. And this, therefore, they charged me with this, with this particular case. Now, <clears throat> we find out 10 years later, after Freedom of Information documents, that the weapons that they alleged that I was supposed to use in shooting this police officer was not the murder weapon. All right? The FBI did a ballistic examination on the 45 caliber pistol that they said that I used in this particular case, and they made a determination that it was not a murder weapon. Now, let me go back. So this happened on May 19th and May 21st. On May 26th, 1971, one week following, J. Edgar Hoover was in the White House with Richard Nixon, and uh, they determined that they was gonna find who was the perpetrators of the shootings, right? It was determined in the White House. It was J. Edgar Hoover, um, uh, the guy who uh, was deep throat in the Watergate situation. Uh, I can't remember his name off, off, offhand right now. Um, and the guys who, some of the guys who were um, involved in the Watergate uh, um, uh, break-in, the burglary, right? We were all part of this meeting, right? along with John Ehrlichman, John Dean, and a few others, all right? Uh, they were all part of this meeting in the White House with Jacob Hoover. And they made a determination that they was going to solve this issue. It was one of uh, uh, Nixon's major uh, uh, platform was, was this, this support of the police department, uh, police officers across the country, very much like Trump today is, and uh, Session today is, all right? There's similarities between the two. Both of them are liars and crooks, but that's another story altogether. Um, um, so they composed a strategy, and they codenamed that strategy New Kill, N-E-W-K-I-L-L, -L, right? And New Kill was a code name for uh, New York killings, right? So this is the, the investigative code name for the solving of this particular crime. Uh, and by virtue of this uh, investigation and my being captured in California, uh, having been a member of the Black Panther Party, uh, and had been a target during that period of time, uh, they determined that we was going to be uh, uh, prosecuted for this particular case. Now, during the course of the trial, it's important to note that a New York City police officer, a ballistic expert by the name of George Simmons, testified during the course of trial that he and only he did the ballistic test on this particular weapon. He and only he did ballistic tests on this particular weapon, and he determined that the weapon that I was captured with, uh, was prosecuted for, was in fact the murder weapon in this case, right? And again, like I said, 10 years later, we find out that he lied, right? 
1991, I believe it was, we was in federal court. Um, it was in federal court and uh, had a, a habeas corpus hearing and George Simmons was put on the stand to testify in this hearing. And the judge determined that he committed perjury. He committed perjury, that he in fact lied during the course of this trial when he said that he and only he was the one who committed the ballistics examinations of this gun, right? However, the judge also determined because of the politics of this case and having derived from Nixon's White House that his lying, his perjury, this weapon not being the murder weapon in this case was harmless error. And therefore he failed to uh, reverse the conviction. So that is the case of me being in prison today. I'm in prison today for a weapon that is not the murder weapon in this particular case. I'm in prison today due to a conspiracy driving from the White House and, and uh, Richard Nixon's White House and uh, J. Edgar Hoover was head of FBI. That is the truth, that is the reality of this conviction. All right. uh, I want to ask you about uh, a couple of months later, August 29th, 1971, John, uh, John Young, who, uh, he was gunned down at the desk. What do you remember? I believe you were completed the contest for voluntary manslaughter. Oh, okay. Okay, thank you. Okay. Talk, okay. All right. This, again, this was a situation that, that came uh, existing from when I was originally arrested. I was, I was arrested on August 28, 1971, right? Um, and the incident we are talking about with uh, Sergeant Young happened on August 29, 1971. I was already in prison. I was in jail at the time this happened. Allegedly, uh, members of the BLA uh, assaulted a, uh, 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 an Ingleside police station, right? And a clerk was wounded and a sergeant was, was killed. Uh, and this was, again, in retaliation for the assassination of George Jackson in San Quentin Prison on August 21, 1971, all right? Um, 40 years later, they decided that they're going to prosecute individuals for that particular uh, crime, right? And they decided that uh, myself, Herman, and uh, six other individuals who was from San Francisco, former Panthers, would be uh, prosecuted for this case. The case was identified, or we, we identified ourselves as the San Francisco Eight. Two years, they held me in solitary confinement uh, in uh, San Francisco County Jail, and this was from 19, it was from 2007 to 2009, uh, held in solitary confinement in San Francisco County Jail for the persecution for the prosecution of this particular case. Now, when they brought up the the case to the media, they said they had new evidence to prosecute this case. They said they had DNA. They said they had fingerprint evidence. They said they had ballistics evidence, right? And they had a star witness to testify, okay? <laughs> Come to find out, all of that was a lie. They didn't have it. The DNA was tested, didn't match any of the eight people. The fingerprints they tested didn't match any of the eight people. The ballistics, they said they had a shotgun that was, was the murder weapon. It ended up being lost. We couldn't find the murder weapon. All right, and the star witness that they had to testify, um, 
he had been tortured in Louisiana when he got captured in 1973, right? Was tortured. And uh, the police officers who were persecuting this, this particular case told the Attorney General's office, now, keep this in mind, the DA's office in San Francisco will not take the case, right? The AG's office, uh, uh, the federal uh, AG's office will not take the case. So the cops who were, were wanted to get this case off their books went to the California Attorney General's office to take the case, right? And so uh, the and they basically duped him and telling him that they had all this this evidence for this for this particular case, right? And so um, uh, the witness that they claimed that they claimed was going to testify, they asked the uh, uh, told the attorney general, the state attorney general, that he would not testify that he had been tortured uh, uh, when it comes time for trial. And um, so when it came time to trial, actually the preliminary hearing, um, the uh, state attorney general went and spoke to him, this witness himself. And the witness told him, said, listen, if, they, if I'm asked on the witness stand, if I was tortured, right, I would testify to the fact that I was tortured. Now, this is a guy who had been beaten five days in a row, had needles st stuck in his testicles, had cattle prod used on his body, was stuck in a cell with a schizophrenic, with the lights on 24-7, right? They broke this individual down. He's willing to say anything they wanted him to say. Matter of fact, he had testified in this case, the New York case, uh, back in 1970, 75. Um, uh, he basically, he, he testified fraudulently um, uh, concerning the weapon uh, that they alleged was uh, belonged to a police officer in this in this case. I just want to go back and so you have some some foundation for this individual. And so. Uh, he testified that Herman, my co-defendant, had taken this weapon, this weapon was a police officer's weapon, and buried it in a, um, in a farm, all right? Now, <clears throat> he and Herman got arrested together in, in Louisiana in, during the same period of time down in Louisiana, and it was tortured. Now, um, so the, the officers uh, was able to have him come testify in the New York case. And prior to his testimony, he asked to speak to the judge. Uh, asked to speak to the judge uh, to let the judge know that what he's going to testify to. So they granted him that opportunity to speak to the judge. He went to the judge's chambers, and he told the judge specifically, emphatically, that what I'm getting ready to testify to is not the truth. Right? That I will be committing perjury. He told the judge that. Right? And after he told the judge that guy named Greenfield, Judge Greenfield, Judge Greenfield sent him back to the prosecutor uh, of this particular case, uh, back to the prosecutor, and withheld that information from the defense for two weeks. And he told the prosecutor, your witness is wavering in his testimony. All right? The prosecutor then told him, if you do not testify where we want you to testify, we will send you back to Louisiana. All right? That's what they told him. So he testified the way they wanted him to testify. All right. After his testimony, after he was released from jail, he came back here, wrote an affidavit that his testimony was fraudulent, that he committed perjury, 
He won a, 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 um, a TV program called Like It Is by Gil Noble, uh, ABC TV program, and made a public statement to the fact that what he testified to was perjury, right? And the reason why he testified, because he, they broke him for his torture. So, <clears throat> so we can see a, a pattern in regards to how they persecute these cases, these, these political cases, right? So, uh, so in San Francisco, August, uh, in 2009, um, uh, Herman, after two years, solitary confinement, made a plea bargain, made a deal with the, uh, with the prosecutor, right? Uh, he said, listen, I'll plead to manslaughter, right? I'll plead to manslaughter, uh, five years probation, and, um, and uh, time served, right? As you well know, in terms of the criminal justice system and the way it operates, 90% of all cases in the criminal justice systems are plea bargain. The majority of these cases never go to trial, right? Uh, and so Herman had missed a, a uh, parole hearing, right? And having been suffered two years in solitary confinement, he recognized that the, the greater probability uh, for him to get out of this, this situation is to make a plea, and that's what he did, right? Um, so during the preliminary hearing, at the time the preliminary hearing is supposed to start, the, the uh, state attorney general made another uh, uh, offer to another one of the co-defendants um, and asked him would he plead, and he said he would not. Right. Um, so, and the plea was was this: he will plead to same thing that Herman pleaded to. That Herman negotiated. His attorneys negotiated, right, to get him out of this, this madness, um, and uh, that he would release, he would, he would um, dismiss the charges on the other five co-defendants, right? Dismiss the charges on the co-defendants, and that particular co-defendant said he will not plead to anything. I'm not going for it, right? So now I'm, I'm left alone in the bullpen. Now all the rest of the guys, they're out, right? They're out on bail. So I'm the last one uh, left in this, in this case. And <clears throat> so I asked my attorney, I said, listen, how come he didn't offer that plea to me, right? Get me out of solitary confinement so I can come back to New York and go to my parole hearings, right? And uh, they came back and told me that the, that the attorney general felt that I would never take a plea because he knew that he felt that I, because of who I am, you know, I don't like to plead guilty to nothing. Um, and he was right. I will not plead guilty to anything. And so I said, listen, tell him that I will plead no contender, no contest, right? And I will take three years probation and time served. And he needs to release, dismiss the charges of the other five uh, uh, co-defendants. And he agreed to those terms, right? So I did not plead guilty. And I, I pled no contest, not to manslaughter, not to murder, but conspiracy to commit manslaughter, right? Which is a made-up crime. Uh, manslaughter is an act of um, an unintentional act, right? So how is it possible for anybody to uh, plead to a conspiracy to commit a conspiracy to commit an unintentional act? Right? So it's a made-up charge. And basically what the, what, the, what the Attorney General wanted to do, he wanted to get rid of this case and get it off his books, right? And that's what happened. So three years probation, 
um, uh, time served, right, to, uh, and no contest, right? I wasn't there, I wasn't involved, okay? Uh, but I had to get this, this thing uh, off, my, off, my, off my shoulders, right? And knowing how the criminal justice system operates, uh, juries are fickled <laughs> for the most part. You never know how they may decide on any case. On the flimsiest things, they may find somebody guilty or they may find somebody not guilty. So rather than uh, throw the dice, right, um, I negotiated this, uh, this no contest plea. Yeah. So given that situation, and given the level of repression and police uh, abuse, at some point, members, Black Panther Party, all members of the Black Panther Party decided it had to be some type of arm response resistance to the brutality. Absolutely. Um, and that, we're looking at in terms of the continuity of the Black radical tradition in terms of fighting against or repressing against slavery, Sure. And on the other hand, we do have people saying, well, there was an element of the Black Panther Party that decided we're going to have armed resistance. Uh, absolutely. Um, well, we, we, we well know that since the, the, our being brought to this country, right, uh, back in uh, during the transatlantic slave, uh, uh, there had been rebellions, there had been revolts. Right. According to history, there have been 250 insurrections during the course of slavery, uh, 200 years, almost 300 years of slavery, 250 uh, slave revolts right, uh, uh, opposing that system. Um, there's a tradition in the black resistance in this country of resistance, right, including armed resistance um, where, uh, and armed self-defense for the most part. Okay. Uh, we had uh, individuals, for instance, like um, uh, Robert Williams. Uh, who proposed, uh, made a book called Negroes with Guns and Self-Defense of the Movement. He was an NAACP member down in uh, South Carolina, North Carolina, and was ran out, ran into exile by Ku Klux Klan uh, uh, terrorism uh, and ran into exile. He wrote a book called Negroes with Guns. We had the Deacons for Defense, History of Deacons for Defense, who were armed black men uh, who protected Martin Luther King and the civil rights during their marches and, and struggles. We had had the uh, African Blood Brotherhood, right, another armed uh, resistance during the course of uh, struggle uh, opposing uh, the Ku Klux Klan and the white supremacists in this country. So we have a tradition of history of armed resistance uh, and fighting for our own freedom and protection of our people. The Black Panther Party is originally named the Black Panther Party for self-defense, self-defense. So its origin was one of defending the community against police brutality uh, and murders, all right? And to rule 26, the rule six of the Black Panther Party was that no Black Panther Party member can join any underground organization except for the Black Liberation Army. So within the confines, within the, the structure of the Black Panther Party was this idea at some point in time in terms of building a revolution that there would be the necessity for armed struggle, right? Uh, and so the BLA was the, the foundation for that. So when we recognize this history of armed resistance, uh, part of the militancy of this country, uh, historically, right, uh, what evolved in, as identified as the Black Liberation Army 
was part of that historic, that continuum of history in defense of our people. All right. So there is nothing, in my opinion, in terms of history and what is actually being taught, strange about people defending themselves. As a matter of fact, you have a, an inalienable right of self-defense. Right. And so the uh, way that we quantify that naturally is that when we are attacked, when we are attacked, we would defend ourselves. Uh, by any means, as Malcolm often said, by any means necessary. Uh, I'm going to switch over and talk about your parole. I know that's maybe coming up and we can get up update. But uh, in 2009, I believe, former uh, Mayor Michael Bloomberg said that your crimes were unforgivable and the sequences were remaining forever in the family for police officers as well as the men and women of the NYP. What are your thoughts on uh, when the mayor called in these sacred cycles? What are your thoughts on that? Well, naturally, you, you'll look at his, his uh, statement as one in support of the PBA. And the PBA's uh, position is that anyone who is convicted of killing or shooting a police officer should never be released from prison, right? Despite what the law says, right? Despite what the, what the you know, uh, what has been sentenced, what a person has been sentenced. Their philosophy is that because the police officer has been shot or killed, that the individual who's convicted of that should never be released from prison. All right. I was convicted um, and sentenced to 25 to life. Right. Therefore, I am not sentenced to life without parole. All right. That was not my sentence. All right. And I've done everything within the 46 years of my incarceration to qualify for release on parole. So when we look at Bloomberg um, statement, naturally it is um, um, based on his own ignorance, right? not knowing the facts of this particular case, one, and parroting the PBA for the most part. All right? um, when I say that I have qualified for release on parole, um, I have uh, obtained two bachelor's degrees uh, sociology, a bachelor's of arts in sociology, a bachelor of science in psychology. Uh, I received uh, uh, certificates in um, computer science um, and um, have over the years uh, provided various programs in our community, right? I have been an IPA or a teacher inside prison system um, uh, for, the, for, the, for the prisons that I've been in. Uh, I have um, engage in all kinds of uh, community activities within the prison and you can receive certificates for each and every one of them. Um, so w when we look at what has been, I have maintained community relation relationships, maintained family relationships, um, have support from uh, individuals like uh, uh, Desmond Tutu, Desmond Tutu, uh, and various other uh, notables uh, Charles Barron, Assemblyman Charles Barron, who supports my release from prison. Uh, I have job opportunities wait, waiting for me, available to me upon my release from prison. So we'll find that um, these parole denials are generally based upon not, not uh, anything that I have committed while in prison, but subject to the nature of the crime itself, right? Um, and that is a problem that we have with the parole system in general. And that's the reason why there is a major campaign in New York State to reform the parole system uh, because of the way that the uh, the way that they've been denying people who are 
generally qualify uh, to be released from prison. Um, there's strong statistics uh, from the Federal Bureau of Prisons and, and other uh, uh, bodies that indicate that individuals who spend more than 10 years in prison, right, who's uh, um, uh, over the age of 50, uh, have college education, has community support, uh, are less than 3% to be recidivists. Less than 3% to be recidivists. So what is the problem, right? So the problem naturally, you know, is, as we can qualify for basis of who I am, right, in my history, uh, the issues of my being denied release is due to the PPA's um, uh, influence of the, the parole system. Of course there has, of, of course, of course there have, you know. Uh, let, me, let me make this point. Loss of life in any aspect, right, is, is a tragedy, okay? I don't care if it's, it's cops being killed. I don't care if it's civilians being murdered. I'm, our civilians being murdered. It's a tragedy, right? Uh, and we must understand that. In this particular case, the, uh, <clears throat> uh, the family member one of the police officers, Waverly Jones, Jr., right, has written to the parole board, has written to uh, um, the governor's office, and basically stated that whether they did it or did not do it, we forgive them, right? And so they have petitioned for us to be released from prison, for us to be paroled, right? So that has, then that has been ignored. So when uh, the parole board allegedly, or considering the, the, the victims in this instance, all right, uh, in these cases, right? Um, for some reason or another, they're ignoring the victim in my case, right? The, the wishes of the victims in my case that we should be released from prison, all right? Uh, adhering to the PBA's adamant position, which is naturally not quantified or codified by law, right? Uh, that a person who was killed, a police officer or shot a police officer should never be released from prison, all right? That is a philosophy. Uh, that is, for the most part, what I consider to be fascist, right, and um, inhumane. Uh, are you encouraged when you hear about people like Judy Clark getting their sentences reviewed by the court? Do you feel that we can grant you the same uh, Well, we have an application in front of Cuomo for, for clemency uh, to, um, for him to commit this sentence to time served, right? That's what I'm asking him to do. Uh, I am not unhappy that he was able to commute Judy's uh, uh, sentence uh, so they should be, become parole eligible, right? Um, but then we also have to question, my problem in, in this is, is question of white skin privilege. Is this an issue of white skin privilege, you know, um, whereby a uh, person of color who may ask for this same uh, consideration continue to be denied where uh, this young woman is granted the, the, this, this opportunity, you know, uh, this chance to be released from prison. So uh, I think we, we really need to consider the racial dynamics that is longstanding 
within the history of this country and within the history of the system, you know, uh, where individuals who, uh, who we know uh, should not be in prison, right, or, or not be in prison for, in, in regards to this particular case, right, um, are not given the, the opportunities of uh, someone else. Where, where are you in Well, the situation with my pro at this point in time is that we have an appeal from 2006. <laughs> Let me give you another example of the silliness of the pro system. 2014, I went to the pro board, and they stated that uh, they were denying my release on parole because my uh, risk assessment stated that I was a uh, high risk for prison misconduct and they denied my release. So I took that into account. Uh, the 2016 uh, risk assessment said that I was an eight for prison misconduct. So in 2016, I go back to the parole board with the, my risk assessment, and the risk assessment for prison misconduct is from a f eight to a four, right? Not only that, but all the other risk assessments have been lowered. Uh, from two to one, um, and from three to one. So all of my risk assessments has been lowered. And so 2016, they denied my release, not because of what I achieved from 2014 to 2016, lowering my prison uh, conduct issues, uh, lowering it, right, decreasing it, but for the nature of the crime. So now they denied me release in 2016, because of a uh, history of violence, which is essentially the nature of a crime, okay? So it seems to, every time you go to the pro board, they move the goalposts, right, further along, all right? So every time you achieve something that is, that warrant being released on parole, they move the goalposts. Um, so 2016 parole hearing, um, one of the individuals, commissioner, a guy by the name of Coppola, he was a former sheriff, uh, Buffalo Chef officer, right? And um, at one time he ran for Senate, New York State Senate, and he was supported by, financially supported by the PBA and various other uh, uh, law enforcement agencies, supported his run for Senate. Now he's on the parole board, right? And so we have a conflict of interest uh, with this individual uh, making, trying to make a decision, uh, in my particular case, when we know that the PBA opposes my release, right? And PBA has supported him, okay? So we have that on, on appeal right now, and I'm waiting for a decision uh, on the issues of uh, uh, that the pro hearing was not fair and impartial. It could not possibly be fair and impartial uh, with this individual who essentially is um, in the pockets of the PBA, right? Uh, sitting on the pro board. Uh, so that's on appeal, and um, so, and, and if that fails, then I'll go back to the parole board on uh, June of uh, 2018. That's on my next schedule. And that will have me 49 years, no, 48 years in prison. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you, you mentioned that in 1976 you set up a national prisoner's campaign. Uh, you set up a national prisoner's advocate studies project. Uh, maybe different here. Are there any vestiges of any of those programs Yes, there are. Uh, the primary vessels or the primary um, uh, organization 
that still exists today is the Jericho Amnesty Movement uh, that came out of the, the uh, uh, campaign that was established in, in 1998, um, um, petitioning the government on, on the issues of political prisoners and building support base for political prisoners. So Jericho, uh, 2018 will be 20 years in existence uh, from the basis of uh, that organizing back in uh, 1998. Um, right now they are considering a new campaign, Jericho, uh, to petition the international jurors to come to the United States and do a formal investigation on human rights abuses of U.S. political prisoners. So that's their campaign that they'll be initiating uh, and developing. Um, and I think that it will be successful um, in as much as we have an individual in the White House who has uh, created a, an environment from which uh, the international community is questioning uh, his leadership, you know, and what is going on in this country. And so the issues of human rights abuses, uh, particularly for those of us who are prisoners or political prisoners, uh, will be high on the agenda uh, coming next year uh, on the basis of this Jericho campaign. And if we can get the international jurors to come back as they did back in 1979 when they investigated and reported to the United Nations that political prison does exist in the United States, Right, and for them to come back and to consider uh, the conditions of those political prisoners, some who are still in prison from back then, uh, I think that we will we'll, uh, create a new precedent on this particular issue and rally the international progressive community to, uh, to support our concerns in, in this country. Yes, so, okay, so as we sit here today, you still maintain that Absolutely, unequivocally, unequivocally. My incarceration, uh, long-term incarceration, is a result of my politics. There's no doubt about that, right? And uh, if I were a quote-unquote common social prisoner, right, a greater probability I would be in out of prison already. There's no if and buts about that. Well, I, I cannot, I, I am not a rapper, and I'm not a performer, so I cannot uh, perform any of those, those poems. I, uh, however, yes, as you well know, man, we, we are motivated by, by the word, all right, by words, all right? Um, if you look at the, the, the primary religions of the, of the world today, you know, they came into existence by virtue of the word. Right. So words are important. Uh, words are motivating and can be inspiring. Right. And, and naturally, uh, it's important for us uh, to commit ourselves to understanding of the language right, um, and also the necessity of uh, using words as a form of, of motivation and inspiration. Uh, the books, uh, we are on liberators, right? Uh, uh, Escape the Prism, uh, Fade to Black, uh, and the other 
blogs and um, writings that I've committed to essentially tells a story, right? And the story is the story of black people in America, right? And being true to that history, being true to that, that dynamic, right? It's extremely important. So uh, in, in, that res in that respect, um, um, the, the use of words, right? Whether it's in poetic form, um, whether it's an essay, uh, a treaty, um, it's important that you convey a message, right? And the message that you always want to convey is the message of liberation, and the message of emancipation, emancipation uh, a message of freedom, right? And as long as you can capable of, uh, of providing that that message, then there will always be hope, right? And we need hope. Uh, we know that um, in today's climate, right, in today's environment, um, that hope is trying to be eroded, right, that there are forces that oppose the emancipation, the freedom, and the liberation of people of color in particular, right? Um, and so we need to use our words judiciously, right, and being truthful in regards to uh, telling the story and telling the story so that it would be unequivocally established that we will not succumb to oppression and repression. Will not. Thank you, Brother. Right. Anything else you want to ask? We're good. Um, We're good? Yeah, is it cool if I take a picture? Uh, yeah, I'm sure. Is it better? Okay. Perfect. Can I get copies of those? Huh? <laughs> Can I get copies of those? <laughs> yeah, yeah. My moms would love it. My moms would love it. I can send it to you. Yeah, okay. Yeah, well, when you make it. Oh, man. Thank you, brother. Oh, that was awesome.